we've got willful blindness on tap. I'm going to be reading some of the, either the forward and the afterward tonight, essays. We're just going to focus on the essays associated with this book. So the full title is Willful Blindness, How a Network of Narcos, Tycoons, and CCP Agents Infiltrated the West. Thank you, everyone, who is joining us. Let me send out a little invite really quick. And invite everybody. All right, fantastic. All right, so we're going to go back here to the... We're going to get past all the acclaim, worldwide acclaim, for, let's just go with a foreword. This is by Charles Burton. He's the senior fellow, uh, the MacDonald Laurier Institute and non-resident senior fellow, European Values Center for Security Policy. This is what he said. He said, surrounded by majestic mountain vistas set on the Pacific Ocean, with clean, fresh air and sandy beaches, Vancouver enjoys a moderate climate with no extremes of heat or cold, a gardener's paradise of lush peonies and flowering trees. Who would not want to live in such a paradise? Since its founding, Vancouver has been favored as a destination for immigrants from China. Today, Vancouver has a larger share of Chinese residents than all other major Canadian or U.S. metro areas. Forty percent of the, of the Southeast Vancouver residents identify as ethnic Chinese. With over 50% Chinese in Richmond and only about 20% over the Vancouver metro area as a whole. Through hard work and persistence against decades of systematized racism, including draconian measures to limit Chinese immigration and integration into mainstream society, Vancouver's Chinese community today thrives and prospers as citizens of Canada. Hospital wings, university buildings, and institutions of arts and culture all over Vancouver proudly bear the Chinese-Canadian names of generous donors. But racial discrimination, misunderstanding, and separateness continue to exist behind language and cultural barriers. There is a lot of work still to be done to overcome the shameful legacy of anti-Chinese bigotry and more and more misidentification of the Chinese uh, Canadian community with the Communist Party-led brutal, repressive, and corrupt regime in China's People's Republic today. This is no more evident than its dissembling over the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic, an ugly tactic of hostage diplomacy to intimidate and coerce Canada which means anti-Chinese racism is again on the rise in Canada. This book looks at the opaque relationship between the Chinese communist political elite and criminal triad gangs who trade in fentanyl, methamphetamines, and opioids, money laundering through casinos, the escalating price of real estate in Vancouver, and the Canadian officials, lawyers, and law enforcement who may be complicit and murky, illicit, highly lucrative underground transactions. But we should be clear that this book is not about the ordinary, honest, and hardworking members of the Chinese-Canadian community in Vancouver who are primarily the victims of all this dark depravity. Much of Willful Blindness is written in the first person. In addition to its revelations of malfeasance leading up to the most senior levels of Canadian political power, this book 
is also a personal story of an investigative reporter's quest over more than a decade of the relentless painstaking work by journalist Sam Cooper to find the facts behind a complex web of circumstantial interconnection between the massive investments by families of China's communist elite in Vancouver real estate, huge cash transactions in BC casinos, and the recurring present presence, sorry, of senior officials of China's communist regime and Canadian politicians photographed in the company of shadowy figures associated with transnational organized crime. Vancouver is where the Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou was arrested in 2019. She had seven passports in her possession when she was detained at the Vancouver airport with indications that she had an eighth official public purposes special PRC passport. Why so many passports? And why does she own two multi-million dollar mansions in Vancouver when she is not even a resident of Canada? Why did Immigration Canada grant her husband and her two children COVID-19 travel exemptions to visit Ms. Meng in Vancouver last year? Which you know, was not 2021, it's 2020. Yet Canada got no reciprocal permission for the families of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor to see their loved ones in the Chinese prisons. It is the reason Canada now finds itself struggling with the Canada-Chinese relations. That's PRC China. So, but these just scratch the surface of the many, many strange goings-on that Sam found hard to account for as he embarked on this journey of discovery back in 2009. Moreover, considering that the government of China has enacted strict controls limiting the export of foreign currency from China, how do the families of Chinese officials and their business associates transfer such enormous quantities of money to Canada? For so many Chinese communist officials, families who have acquired real estate in Vancouver, the provenance of such vast amounts of Canadian dollars they used to pay for it is unclear especially as their Lamborghini and Ferrari lifestyles far exceed the range of their legitimate, modest government salaries. But the relationship between the Communist Party and triad criminals at all levels, domestically and abroad, are well established. From thugs that rough up Chinese political dissidents and forced impoverished farmers to give up their land pennies on the dollar, for expropriation for lucrative development to the respected captains of industry, in Chinese enterprises with established high-level triad associations whose stock and trade is tax evasion, massive official bribery, and intimidation like Hollywood, Hollywood Mafia dons because that is the only way to make a go of it in Xi Jinping's China. There is no space in the CCP system for an honest man. So. The idea that such people linked to triads use illegal underground banks to get both their legitimate and ill-gotten gains to safety through luxurious bolt holes in Canada against the day they get on the wrong side of this Communist Party's factional struggle is not unexpected. So it turns out that it is based on reciprocity with the triads active in Canada, like the infamous Big Circle Boys who make their profits, 
profits in North America but need to source the product they are selling to drug addicts here from factories in China. The process is as simple as it is blatant. Some of the money derived from Communist Party official corruption is handed over to the triads in China. Hockey bags packed with rolls of Canadian 20s, proceedings of drug sales to Canadian downtrodden are later transferred from the trunks of cars to BC casinos where they are exchanged for gambling chips used by Chinese gamblers to play baccarat up to $100,000 a bet. The chips are then cashed in for checks and deposited into Canadian banks and given to lawyers to complete real estate purchases. But this tidy little scheme implicates Canadian banks, Canadian lawyers, Canadian real estate agents, the provincial regulators of casino gambling, and the politicians who oversee them. The willful blindness hangs on their pretense that if Chinese money, PRC China, is not from illicit sources, they are not culpable under Canadian law. So the hockey bags of bundled up small bills are dismissed by the absurd logic that carrying around considerable sums in small bills is a Chinese cultural norm. Sam Cooper has based a lot of this book on classified information leaked to him by a brave RCMP officer, BC casino investigators, and intelligence sources outraged at the level of criminality going on in Canada. Without those complicit in and enabling to be made accountable for their crimes, these police officers and investigators are only too aware that they lack the linguistic expertise and resources to meet the challenge of such a large-scale, sophisticated operation that evidently has the support of PRC consular officials in Canada. They are angry and frustrated that their internal reports back to Ottawa on on what's going on with detailed recommendations for what should be done about it are consistently ignored. So some of these voices were heard in British Columbia as David Eby, E-B-Y, has called a provincial inquiry to be headed by British Columbia Supreme Court Justice Austin Cullen. Sam Cooper in these pages speaks for all of them. This book is a call for further action. Behind Vancouver's magnificent verdant beauty setting is the ugly avarice of greed and shadowy corruption in high places. After you read this book, you will understand that the operations go well beyond Canada's borders, reaching into the U.S., Australia, Japan, and other Western nations. Thanks to Sam Cooper, we are starting to see the facts of this political and criminal depravity exposed to the light of public debate. Sam Cooper has done Canada a great service by finally getting the truth out. After all, sunshine is the best disinfectant. So that's the first essay, followed by a quote. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. Accountability first. Holding the governments to account should not be conflated with racism. This is an essay by Tang Biao. I was born and grew up in China and I still have Chinese passport. 
My academic research and activism focuses on human rights, justice, and politics in China. I have dedicated and sacrificed a lot to fight for a better China. I'm against the Chinese Communist Party. This is Tang Biao. I support sanctioning corrupt Chinese officials and human rights abusers. I participated in the fight for human rights and freedom of the Uyghurs, Tibetans, and Hong Kongers. I proposed more scrutiny on the CCP operations in the West, such as the Confucius Institutes, the Gongos, and the propaganda media outlets indirected by the United Front Works Department operations linked to consulates around the world. It is ridiculous to claim that criticizing the Chinese government is part of the racist narrative of anti-China or anti-Chinese. To a great extent, the love of China or the Chinese people requires those outside of China to oppose the Chinese government or the CCP. It is important for countries like the United States and Canada to remain open to the world. Welcome to people from different cultures, religions, and political systems. But that definitely doesn't mean a country should become a safe haven for money laundering, corruption, and human trafficking. An open society must not be exploited by dictatorial regimes to monitor the diaspora of communities and to spread its anti-democracy propaganda. Two Canadian citizens, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, were arbitrarily detained and cruelly treated by the Chinese Communist government as an obvious retaliation for the detention of Meng Wanzhou. If Canadians have been shocked by the judicial blackmail, it is a wonderful opportunity to deepen their understanding of the characteristics of the regime by reading this book. The author's argument, as well as the value of the book, have been proved by the fact that the UFWD operatives were trying to file a vicious lawsuit against him. After the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989, with the help of Western engagement, money, and technology, the CCP has established increasingly powerful and brutal totalitarianism domestically and has become more and more aggressive on the international stage and a threat to global freedom. Its extraterritorial laws and the long arm of enforcement overstretch in many different ways. For example, its control of Chinese immigrants, its economic coercion, and its abduction of refugees overseas, including dissidents, booksellers, weirs, and businessmen. Its theft, bribery, and propaganda are institutionalized through the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, AIIB. The One Belt, One Road, BRI. The South China Sea Aggression. International Cyber Attacks and Espionage. Manipulation of the UN Human Rights Mechanisms. And the Thousand Talents Program. Now China is demanding rewriting of international norms. Attempting to create a new international order in which the rule of law is manipulated Human dignity is debased, democracy is abused, and justice is denied. The free countries should re-examine their China policy and stand up to the CCP's infiltration, erosion, and bullying before it's too late. The Chinese people will sooner or later enjoy liberal democracy and fundamental human rights. 
but the world should support the suppressed people and the courageous freedom fighters. And this is Teng Biao, Posen visiting professor, University of Chicago Grove human rights scholar, Hunter College, CUNY president, China against the death penalty. Okay, so that's his his essay. Okay, so we're going to go back to might have to just read this first chapter. This is chapter one called The Whales. For the cops at the summit, it was insane how these gamblers were allowed to lug bags of cash into the casinos every day of the week. All you had to do was watch the casino surveillance footage. Mind-blowing. Ross Alderson woke early at his home in Richmond and told his wife he was going out for coffee before work. He sometimes talked to her about his job in the casinos, but he decided not to mention he was about to meet one of Canada's top drug cops. Alderson stepped into his black Ford Ranger and drove east along to the Fraser River, passing the low-rise malls, warehouses, and shipping containers. He turned north onto the Queensboro Bridge and drove over the port of New Westminster. He slipped Pearl Jam 10 into the CD player and turned the volume on low. Just enough sound to ease the nerves. He was thinking about the cryptic late night text from Calvin Krusty, a senior officer with Canada's federal serious and organized crime unit. They had agreed to meet at the Cafe Artigiano on Hastings Street in Vancouver. Alderson could only guess what Krusty was about to tell him. But it seemed big. Just a few months into his new job as BC Lottery Corp's anti-money laundering director, and Alderson felt like he was living a double life. In some ways, it felt like he was back in Melbourne, Australia, back to being a cop. He turned on Marine Drive and drove past drove west along the Fraser River, cutting across the southern slice of Burnaby, mostly fields of timber, until you come up to the river district near Boundary Road. Alderson was amazed by how the fast how fast the luxury condo projects were stacking up beside the river. Small rooms and high prices. It's mostly offshore money, he thought to himself. He looked out his driver's side window and back across the river to Richmond. It was sprawling, chaotic, growing at a crazy pace. The city had the largest population of mainline China immigrants in the world. Incredible amounts of absentee property owners. Alderson's own family had been lucky. In 2009, they had bought a townhouse for 341000 Six years later, this in his dinky little suburban corner of East Richmond, you couldn't buy a house for less than $1 million. Alderson turned north on Boundary Road, the dividing line between Vancouver and Burnaby, and powered up his truck up the steep hill. His mind was circling around the evolving threats he faced in his new job. It was July of 2015. In June, his first big task had been to organize a summit for leaders from British Columbia's casino industry. About 20 experts had gathered in the conference room at the Lottery Corps, Vancouver headquarters. 
Calvin Cresty and several RCMP leaders attended, along with leaders from the BC Casino Regulator, GPEB. Some banking executives and investigators from the Canada Revenue Agency and Canada Border Services Agency. Alderson remembered that Krusty, a broad-shouldered and blunt-talking investigator who looked a bit like former Oakland Raiders linebacker Howie Long, had seemed skeptical, skeptical about the lottery course motives for holding the summit. The correct answer to the summit's headline question, do BC casinos have a money laundering problem, was obvious to most people there, but not to everyone. Everybody knew. The primary revenue driver for BC government casinos were visits from these ultra-wealthy Chinese businessmen. At any given time, there are about 100 foreign VIP patrons gambling at the Lottery Corp casinos in Richmond, Vancouver, Burnaby, New Westminster, and Coquitlam. These visitors were among the richest and most powerful men in the world, industrialist tycoons and Chinese state military and police officials who claimed to have amassed tremendous fortunes as real estate developers, miners, oil barons, shipbuilders, and construction moguls. Gambling is illegal in China, banned for the masses by the Chinese Communist Party, but betting is also deeply embedded in the country's underground culture. And from Alderson's point of view, gambling was permitted for China's elite through the backdoor channels. For these whale gamblers, Baccarat was the game of choice, and they traveled the world to play it. In some BC Lottery Corp casinos, in private salons where the VIPs were treated like royalty, they could bet up to $100,000 per hand. They won and lost obscene amounts of money at Richmond's River Rock Casino, the favorite destination in Canada for the Chinese whales who also gambled in Macau, Las Vegas, and Melbourne. At the elite level, what the Lottery Corp called VVIP players, the gamblers bought chips with no less than $500,000 cash. Alderson topped the hill on Boundary Road when, where Burnaby's skyline showered, show, showed over the pines in Central Park. He stopped at Kingsway Road and looked east to the cranes and condo towers surrounding Burnaby's Metro Town Mall. He knew Kingsway was thick with underground casinos, tucked behind currency exchanges and in the back rooms of karaoke lounges. But trying to shut them down was like playing whack-a-mole. The locations changed so often. Alderson crossed Kingsway and continued north on Boundary Road. He turned his thoughts back to the BC casino settlement. Alderson knew that China's economy had to be considered in order to grasp what was happening in BC Lottery Corps casinos. He had arranged a presentation from Canadian foreign correspondent Jonathan Manthorpe, a veteran China watcher. Manthorpe's point was that Canadian leaders
They're either senior members of the ruling Communist Party or close to them through family or business ties, Manthorpe said. They're the elite who have benefited the most from the economic revolution. Most of the wealth created in the last three decades is now in the hands of a few families. Let me just not get lost here. Attached to the Communist Party. So I'm going to read that sentence again. Much of the wealth created in the last three decades is now in the hands of a few families attached to the Communist Party. Oh. What's up with my audio? Hello? Okay, guys, just send me a signal if you can hear me now. If you can just send me an emoticon, you can hear me now. Okay, good. Sorry. So for Alderson, the takeaway from Manthorpe's presentation was blunt. China's population was getting raped by its leaders. And Chinese state corruption was turning Vancouver's real estate market into an overpriced collection of lockboxes. But Manthorpe's research didn't address the cash funneling into Lottery Corp casinos. The multi-billion dollar question was how the offshore high rollers had acquired industrial loads of paper currency in Canada. It was not coming from Canadian banks. For the cops at the summit, it was insane how these gamblers were allowed to lug bags of cash into the casinos every day of the week. All you had to do was watch the casino surveillance footage. Mind-blowing. You had guys carrying big Louis Vuitton and Gucci leather totes, suitcases on wheels, and for the ultra whales, hockey bags stuffed with $20 bills. GPEB investigators had witnessed gamblers literally dragging hockey bags holding 1 million cash up the escalators to private cash cages. You would see a couple of guys rapidly unload the bricks of cash wrapped in elastic bands, shove them across the counter to cashiers who stacked the paper like hay bales and then fired the bills through electronic money counters. When the, when the bills were tallied and the cashiers passed the gamblers' high-value betting chips and the cash was immediately spirited from the cage down to the casino vault. And this happened night after night. The way Alderson and the RCMP GPEB investigators man's alphabet soup, at the summit saw it, this was obviously incredibly suspicious. But... Not for all the Lottery Corp executives. Brad Desmarais, a retired cop with years of experience leading RCMP anti-gang teams, had some funny explanations. Desmarais theorized the Chinese high rollers were flying into Vancouver International Airport with suitcases full of Canadian cash. But the GPEB investigators ridiculed this explanation. How the hell do you fly to Canada carrying a sack of $20 bills weighing about as much as an average-sized female? Not to mention that Canadian cash is disliked in China and very seldom carried there. And on top of that, what legitimate businessman would fly across the Pacific Ocean with $1 million cash in a hockey bag taking on the incredibly high odds of seizure or theft just for a weekend of gambling in Vancouver. So it would be like risking your chips before you even getting the, to the Baccarat table 
But when the airplanes from China theory got shot down, Desmarai had another explanation. The VIPs were acquiring cash in Canada through legitimate underground banking, he explained. Oh, oh, okay. So it wasn't Canada's problem that China barred its citizens from exporting more than 50000 a year. And so the Chinese community in Canada had established underground banking methods to facilitate trade. And this wasn't a bad thing. As ridiculous and blinded as this argument may have sounded to the cops in the room, it was basically an unwritten policy for Canada's real estate and banking sectors. And Desmarais had previously flown to Victoria and briefed BC Finance Minister Mike DeJong's office on the Lottery Corporation's surging cash transactions. He told DeJong's deputy, Cheryl Wenzeki Yaland, that underground banking could explain the mystery money flooding into BC casinos and the provincial treasury. So as the cash arguments heated up at the summit, Desmarais doubled down. For years, the RCMP had known that wealthy visitors from China were moving loads of cash around Vancouver, he said. But they'd never been able to prove this cash was criminal. That's when Wade Rideout, the highest-ranking RCMP officer, stepped in. It's silly to argue that bags of cash carried into BC casinos are not suspicious, Rideout told Desmarais. Krusty and Rideout had talked about this before the summit. Are we the king or the pawn at this table? Was the lottery corp trying to play everyone else, uh, building a narrative to justify revenue from the Chinese capital flight? So on June 5th, 2015, the day after the summit, Krusty emailed GPEB's director, Lynn Millier. It is a complex issue, but as stated yesterday, while the flight of capital is a, con- a key concern, we know China's financial elite have close ties to organized crime, Krusty Wood. And we know- also know the cartels are close to the Chinese networks. Dot, dot, dot. On the sidelines at the summit, Alderson had good skills with the RCMP leaders, and he suggested following up with private meetings. The RCMP bosses agreed a few days later. Alderson drove from the Lottery Corp headquarters in Vancouver across the Port Man Bridge into Surrey and parked his ranger outside the National Forces high security facility, Green Timbers. Walking up the massive white complex, Alderson felt his gut tighten. He turned over his driver's license at, at the security desk behind a large wall, bulletproof as he guessed, and the officers handed him a visitor's pass. He was led through a turnstile, and they walked him into a conference room. He was a bit awestruck. The one billion federal building, a collection of giant rectangles sprawled across a park, had bunkers within bunkers. There was an ultra-secure command and control center where leaders would retreat and run BC during a major disaster or terror attack. There was a real-time intelligence center where analysts monitored all manners of uh, electronic records and signals. It was intimidating sitting at the board table. Just try to hold your own, Alderson said to himself. He had been a police detective in Australia, yes, but this is RCMP's top brass intently looking at him. Most he recognized from the Lottery Corp Summit, but there were people he didn't know, like the man in the finely cut suit and intelligence type, he guessed. After introductions, Alderson made it clear he sympathized with the RCMP. He said that BC casinos had a massive crime and dirty money problem. 
Alderson said he wouldn't apologize for what came before him inside the BC casinos, but he was committed to cleaning up. And whatever the RCMP asked from him at the Lottery Corp, they'd get it. Calvin Krusty didn't have much to say in the boardroom, but afterwards several officers from Krusty's team brought Alderson into an operations room and excitedly introduced him to the file they called Silver. They had maps all over the walls, photos of suspects that were linked to other suspects with pen, pins and colored threads. And the suspects were geolocated to businesses across Red, Richmond and Vancouver and also connected to various vehicles and private residences. There were lists of suspicious transactions and police investigations and incidents, link charts and flowcharts and hierarchy charts. And China's territory was a focal point for, for the RCMP. The officers told Alderson the Silver File was really two major organized crime investigations running parallel. But they appeared to be converging. The file had started as a transnational drug trafficking probe focused on a cartel based in mainland China and strong around the world, especially in B.C., Macau, and Hong Kong. In the beginning, the RCMP suspected links to the B.C. casinos, but that wasn't the focus. But now the underground officers had identified what they believed was an illegal cash house in downtown Richmond. This was Silver, and Krusty's team was starting to see connections between Silver and the network of casino loan sharks and whale back rat players at River Rock Casino. I'm going to pause for water. Thank you. One of the primary targets pinned to the wall of Silver Ops room was a Richmond man named Paul King Jen. Alderson looked at Jin's photo. He was a bald, muscular man with a strong jaw and thick lips. He looked like a fighter. Alderson recognized his mugshot from the Lottery Corp investigation files. They had a huge cache of casino security reports on Jin. He was a VIP gambler at the River Rock Casino, but he also reputed to be the biggest loan shark in BC casinos and connected to lots of VIP gamblers from mainland China and some BC casino staff. Krusty's team asked if Alderson could provide them his Lottery Corp investigation unit's suspicious cash transaction reports. Alderson said he could, and after the first visit to the Green Timbers, he had returned about once a week and met with RCMP officers across Vancouver at malls and coffee shops. They would show him photos of silver targets and give him USB drives containing surveillance photos from inside Silver's cash house. They asked Alderson if he could, if he recognized any of the people that they showed him from his own Lottery Corp and casino surveillance files. Yes, he told him he did, and by this time, Alderson could guess why Krusty's team brought him inside their sanctum. Alderson had the keys to BC Lottery Corp's kingdom. Secret information on the Chinese VIPs, how much they were gambling, what industries they claimed to be involved in, and who associated with inside the casinos, including other gamblers, casinos, employees and managers, loan sharks, bodyguards, and politicians. Politicians. And so he agreed to give Krusty's team the VIP they should watch. It was personal and confidential information. 
These were the handful of, of mainline Chinese whales connected to hundreds of millions in suspicious cash transactions every year in B.C. The Canadian privacy laws that protect corporations, lawyers, and, in, and investors are notoriously stringent from a police perspective. Alderson knew he was putting himself out on a limb, providing this information to Krusty's team, and he wasn't asking permission from his Lottery Corp bosses. It was dangerous territory. In some ways, Alderson was feeling greater allegiance to the police than the Lottery Corp. His access to the corporate intelligence on suspicious gamblers and transactions, tightly guarded from public scrutiny by the Lottery Corp, when combined with the RCMP's organized crime intelligence, made an extremely powerful investigative database. But the tension was growing inside him. In basic terms of the job, a casino anti-money laundering director was to identify and reject suspicious cash. But realistically, to turn away a VVIP player carrying $500,000 in cash, that obviously had huge revenue impacts for the casinos, the Lottery Corp, and BC's government. <clears throat> there would be pressure from all sides if you barred a billionaire industrialist. Dot, dot, dot. In the windshield, Alderson could see the North Shore Mountains rising across the Burend Inlet. And through his driver's side window, in the distance, downtown Vancouver, a gleaming wall of glass. He was coming down Boundary Road through the Hastings sunrise of East Vancouver, a low-rise, blue-collared neighborhood where a rundown 11,000-square-foot bungalow could sell for $1.5 million. He had already driven past a Lottery Corporation Vancouver office at Renfrew and Broadway. No turning back. Just a few minutes away from Cafe Artigiano, he met Christie again. Was he trying to serve two masters? How much information could he share with the RCMP while doing his job for BC Lottery Corp? It was stressful. And Alderson wasn't just weighing his relationship with the RCMP. I didn't know it yet, but Alderson was closely following my reporting for the Vancouver province. I was filing story after story but Vancouver's insane real estate market and the mystery money from China, Alderson recognized some of the biggest whales in BC casinos were the exact same mainline Chinese developers and corruption suspects I was writing about. And he was especially bothered by my March 2015 report, Chinese police run secret operations in BC to hunt allegedly corrupt officials and laundered money. Finally, in 2017, Alderson contacted me. We arranged to meet an anti-money laundering conference in, in Victoria. He decided to share confidential BC Lottery Court files, including a document naming dozens of River Rock casinos whales, gamblers, funded by Paul King Jin. It was the most sensitive record I've ever obtained, and the code breaker I used to expose the criminal method now known as the Vancouver model. Dot, dot, dot. Life had moved fast since Alderson's, Alderson was promoted as the Lottery Corp's new anti-money laundering director in April of 2015. He and his wife had talked about his past and the expectations. He told her that if he did his job right, he'd be going against the grain of a powerful industry. 
They also talked about his lingering regret from leaving policing. In a strange way, he told her, this new casino job, he might be able to do more fighting or organized crime than he ever hoped to in Australia. He was from New Zealand, and growing up, he had always wanted to be a cop. He had some tough circumstances in his teens and had to move away from home and grow up fast. He was big and athletic, about six foot three and over 200 pounds. And he disliked bullies. It all drew him to policing. But it didn't happen until he moved to Australia. In his late 20s, he was sworn in. He started working the street beat in Melbourne's Box Hill neighborhood. It was one of Australia's largest Chinese community and very similar to Richmond and Vancouver in many ways, he thought. Lots of wealth pouring in from China via mysterious channels. An international resort casino in Melbourne filled with jet-set Chinese high rollers. So much cash. Supercars, empty condos, all the red flags. Alderson had moved up quickly from a junior constable position to a special enforcement team in Box Hill. He did well and won an award. It was an interesting place for a cop to learn the ropes. Several times he'd pulled over flashy sports cars and been offered cash out of the window. He wanted to see more of the world, so he left his police job in Box Hill and came to Canada in 2008 and took a job with the Lottery Corp interviewing prize winners. When he decided to settle in British Columbia and married a woman from Richmond, he saw the flags again, but even bigger now. He liked to tell people that he knew the good and the bad of the Chinese culture from his time in Box Hill. He liked to eat Chinese for lunch at the Aberdeen Center, right across from the Radisson Airport Hotel on the bank of the Fraser River, a five-minute drive from the River Rock Casino. The restaurant always asked for cash, and in 2011, he was stationed at River Rock Casino in a security and surveillance job. Working for the BC government casinos was a good gig. Perks at the Lottery Corp were great. He had a company car right away and a phone. He was well paid, but people had blinders on. His first day at the Richmond Casino, he thought, holy shit, bags and bags and bags of cash coming in. The staff was completely blasé. No one was asking questions. Alderson had read the security files. The top Lottery Corp VIP Baccarat player for the past 10 years, Lin Lin Shaw, Lee Lin Shaw, sorry, claimed to be a coal miner in China. A coal miner in China. He brought in hundreds of thousands in almost nightly. He's, he's legitimate, Alderson was told. Cash is lucky in China. Mr. Shaw was a commercial real estate developer, too. Mm. Okay, according to Alderson's bosses at the Lottery Corp. But he also happened to lend big money to Chinese immigrants. BC court records showed me. And these cash loans were secured against Vancouver real estate. For me, he, he looked more like an underground banker of some kind than a coal miner. And when I found that a woman involved in Mr. Shaw's U.S. dollar loan network was also listed as RCMP suspect 16 in the hierarchy chart that named Paul King Jin as suspect 22, my hunch about Mr. Shaw looked right. But back in the day when Alderson would press people about patrons like Mr. Shaw, why can't you just ask the high rollers where the cash is from? They would say because they lose face. They're very wealthy. It's not customer friendly. It's invasive. Did the fact that Mr. Shaw once bet a $3.1 million deal in a single month at BC casinos have 
anything to do with the lack of interest in where his cash came from? In Alderson's mind, there was no question. As a cop in Australia, he had learned all about the flight of capital from China and the corrupt officials, but the staff in BC government casinos didn't want to hear about it. Alderson felt the governments of Canada and Australia had different attitudes towards excessive offshore wealth. A memorable quote from Melbourne from a Melbourne cop. Excuse me. Next page. Put the national differences in perspective. In 2013, after a 12-month operation targeting a super cartel operating out of China, Hong Kong, Macau, Thailand, Malaysia, Vietnam, and Burma, Australian federal police I gotta read that again. Okay. In 2013, after a 12-month operation targeting a super cartel operating out of China, Hong Kong, Macau, Thailand, Malaysia, Vietnam, and Burma, Australian federal police seized 42 kilos of heroin and methamphetamines and $4 million in cash, plus luxury homes worth $5 million, $600,000 in gambling chips from Crown Casino Resort in Melbourne, a Lamborghini, and 99 designer handbags. This was one of the new corporate-style drug syndicates out of Asia, a sophisticated collective of untouchable figures from various Chinese gangs. International police were starting to believe these Asian super cartels were bigger than Pablo Escobar had ever been. There were natural limits to how much cocaine Colombia could actually produce each year, but the sky was the limit for chemical production in Chinese factories. In the Age newspaper quoted Federal Police Commander David Sharp saying that 27 people arrested were significant players in the Chinese syndicate and the luxury items seized by police displayed extravagance and arrogance. It's personally quite satisfying when you see these people live this sort of lifestyle and then you see them in tears when the handcuffs go on and their Lamborghini is on the back of a truck being towed away, Sharp said. Lots of Canadian police would agree with that comment. But in the Canadian government, the statement would be seen as bad form. It's a bit too passionate and aggressive, a bit too gung-ho and American. From what I heard about the Calvin Krusty, an investigator who relished working with the United States drug enforcement teams, the more aggressive policing style seemed to fit. I was told that Krusty came from Winnipeg and had seen the fatal d damage drug addiction does to the vulnerable communities, especially First Nations. His internationally mil international military service was also formative, and he saw Canada as a nation with blinders on. Most of the population was clueless about international criminals who were often secretly connected to foreign states. In drug trafficking investigations, Krusty saw the world as a field of play, and he was fluid in his play calling, not afraid to shove an active probe aside and respond quickly to source info. That's how you could intercept an incoming load of chemical precursors from Hong Kong or a shipping container from Brazil packed with Peruvian cocaine and Chinese fentanyl pills. Krusty's philosophy didn't always mesh with upper management in the RCMP. I heard he, he had fans, but also a few critics. Some viewed him as too aggressive and blunt, 
but he was also seen as a person who would take the most challenging files without factoring in political calculations. And as one investigator with the Canada Revenue Agency in Ottawa once told me with a shrug, say what you want, but no one is taking more drugs off the streets in British Columbia than Calvin Krusty. It was fair to say that in July of 2015, both Krusty and Alderson were experiencing considerable institutional tensions. Hmm. Very interesting. So there were a few Lottery Corp colleagues that shared Alderson's aggressive instincts on the whale gamblers, but he had to be careful. When he started asking questions about the mysterious billionaires flying it, it got to back to him that a Lottery Corp investigator who had also worked for River Rock Casino told people that Alderson was guilty of racially profiling Chinese casino patrons. And increasingly, he was butting heads with some staff in the Richmond Casino. Every day, he would come in at 9 a.m. and start by reviewing surveillance tapes and casino and, and casino security reports. Quite often, Alderson told me important information from videos was missing from the reports. Very incriminating stuff on suspicious transactions. He could never prove that the security staff was pressured to sanitize their reports, but he did question them sometimes and once escalated a report to GPEB, suggesting they kicked the tires on a staff integrity investigation. But GPEB, which was controlled by the same BC ministry that oversaw Lottery Corp, apparently did not have executive support for such a probe, Alderson was told. He would also look at the internal iTrack reports filled by the casino staff, records that logged suspicious transactions and associations. One case that stood out was a BC politician, Richard Cheng Chang, a man from Taiwan elected as a municipal councillor in Burnaby. Reading this man's files was incredibly telling. Any investigator at the River Rock could have read those files and taken action. But Chang was still in the casino almost every night. Chang would loiter around the VIP salon holding a man purse. He was passing casino chips to players from what Alderson saw. To Alderson, he looked like a loan shark, but obviously in the sanitized corporate luggage of BC Lottery Corp, a band lender or a cash facilitator. Someone who could reasonably be suspicious suspected of laundering criminal proceeds in the casino. One Lottery Corp report that struck Alderson said that Chang drove a black Porsche Carrera and surveillance footage showed him driving straight to the Starlight Casino in New Westminster and making cash drops to the Chinese VIPs. That's not suspicious. This is while he was serving on Burnaby Council, Alderson thought with the power to make laws and green light condo zoning and development permits and counselors make about 60 grand a year how could chang afford a sports car worth over $100,000 Alderson saw that chang had been cited for an incident at river rock casino so he wrote a summary report and banned him from all bc casinos but incredibly Alderson told me a manager at river rock responded by vouching for chang he was a great guy who had traveled with the River Rock Casino manager to China on business. Alderson was amazed. What kind of business? Recruiting whales? Dot, dot, dot. Alderson turned off of Boundary Road and parked on Hastings Street. He walked into the Artig Artigiano and sat down. Krusty wasn't there yet. 
few last minutes to gather his thoughts. Obviously, something had changed last night. Just a few days previously, Krusty had told Alderson their silver, silver intel sharing agreement had to end. Why? And then Krusty texted late at night, asking to meet for coffee. Now, here he was. They got coffees and sat down in a quarter booth. Krusty got to the point. Last night, his unit had broken the case. The RCMP could now connect the bags of cash being dropped off at the River Rock Casino for Chinese VIPs to drug trafficking from mainline China from a mainline China crime cartel. I don't know why that's hard to get out. <laughs> the Richmond Low Shark, Paul King Jin, was allegedly running an underground bank. It was a business located in a Richmond office tower called Silver International, basically a criminal bank, unlicensed, operating in broad daylight. Drug dealers were delivering cash every day to the business, suitcases full of cash, and Paul Jin's gang was lending it out. In very basic terms, it worked like this. Paul Jin traveled to Macau and China and recruited whale gamblers. The gamblers agreed to fly to Vancouver, and after lending at the airport in Richmond, they called or texted Jin on WeChat. The whales would place orders for cash deliveries from Silver using coded WeChat messages. Jin would receive the coded orders, drive to Silver International, load up the cash in his white Lexus SUV, then drive the cash loads to the VIPs waiting in parking lots near the Richmond Casino. The VIPs would take the delivery of hockey bags of cash from Jin, walk them into the casino, and then wash the money in the casino chip purchases. That was the basic transaction flow. Drug dealers from China shipped the drugs to Vancouver. Gangsters across Canada sold the drugs. The drug cash was collected and deposited at Silver International. Jin's gang provided Silver's criminal cash deposits to whale gamblers. The money was washed in BC Lottery Corp casinos. After that, the transactions got more complex. Money was coming in from China, getting wired from Silver's accounts to, in Richmond to bank accounts in China in order to fund drug imports to BC. Silver was bouncing wire transfers to banks offshore and then covering bank wires with false trade invoices. And the funds were released in Venezuela... Peru and Mexico to ship cocaine to Canada. So this was a global drug crime at the highest echelon and all of it was running through the underground bank in the Richmond office tower and the Lottery Corp VIP rooms in Vancouver. So Krusty had one last bombshell for Alderson. He said RCMP transaction analysis indicated some terrorist financing entities in South America were linked to Silver and the Chinese underground banking network in Richmond. Alderson was knocked out. It was almost too much to process. If BC Lottery Corp had managers knowingly accepting cash connected to drug trafficking and terrorist financing and could put government officials in jail, they could do that. Alderson got into his Ranger and drove west on East Hastings. He had to meet right away with the BCLC's chief executive, Jim Lightbody. And that's where we're going to end it. That's the end of chapter one. It's a long story. You guys really toughed it out. So that's the first chapter. Tomorrow we're going we're gonna to cover section 86 of Willful Blindness. Hope, hopefully you'll tune back in. 
at 7.20 p.m., and we'll have this uh, on tap for you. Thank you for joining uh, this summer reading, uh, Essays and Chapter 1 of Sam Cooper's Willful Blindness. We'll be back tomorrow at 7.20. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access unsanctioned citizen podcast archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio podcasts, and call in. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com.